Welcome, folks. Welcome, listeners. This is Rusty Reno, and this is the first of what I hope is a long series of podcasts, the Editor's Desk series, and where we look at material in the latest issues of First Things and speak with the authors. This podcast is being sponsored by the Center for Autism Assertiveness and Social Skills Counseling and Coaching Services. You can get more information at theautismexpert.com. And I'm delighted to have on the inaugural podcast, Dan Lipinski, to talk about his piece in the October issue of First Things, Common Good Republicans. Welcome. Thank you, Rusty. And it's great to uh, have the honor of being your first guest. (laughs) So uh, just so our listeners know you a little, Catholic, Democrat, Chicago congressman. Um, somebody once told me that in Chicago, you're born Democrat and baptized Catholic. Um, is that true? <laughs> that that was the way that that certainly was the way that uh, it used to be, at least. Uh, certainly, when I was growing up, that's pretty much everyone. Uh, pretty much everyone I knew uh, fit that. Things have changed. Uh, to a certain extent, since then, uh, the, the Democrat still still sticks, but uh, baptized Catholic, uh, unfortunately, has um, has really uh, has gone down. But uh, there's there's still a lot of us here. You talk about in your article for us the way in which the Catholic Church became very closely allied with the Democratic Party during the early decades of the 20th century. Um, spell that out. What you what that history was? Well, a lot of the immigrants uh, to the United States, uh, you know, starting in the late uh, 19th century, going to the early 20th century, came over here. Many from uh, you know di- different parts of uh, of Europe. You know, my family from uh, mostly from from Poland. Uh, I, I am a quarter Irish, um, also. So these. Immigrants came. Uh, they brought their Catholic faith. Uh, they came to work in a lot of the, the tougher jobs, in, in the stockyards, and in, in the steel mills, and the, the coal mines. Uh, and you know, the Democratic Party uh, was the party of uh, working people. Uh, did a lot of things for uh, the working class, for to, to help workers, workers' rights. And especially in the big cities like Chicago, the Democratic uh, Party political operation uh, brought a lot of these new immigrants into the party. And so uh, the Catholic Church and the Democratic Party uh, became closely uh, closely aligned. And certainly the the Democratic Party. more closely uh, than the Republican Party, you know, fit with a Catholic social teaching in the late 19th century, Rerum Novarum, um, Pope Leo XIII. And so it was just very natural that a, you know, certainly not all Catholics were, were Democrats, but uh, certainly uh, many of them were in, in the working class almost exclusively were, were Democrats. And you're your father was involved in politics and was a congressman, yes? 
Yes, my father was elected to Chicago City Council in 1975 and elected to the U.S. Congress in 1982. What was the configuration of, and you, you, you obviously remember those times, and uh, what was the configuration of the Democratic Party in, in 1980? Uh, it was the Carter's defeat by Ronald Reagan in that electoral year. Um, but the Democratic Party was not the same as it is today. And you, how was it different? The Democratic Party was, was very different uh, in, in some places. It, at that time, there was still a lot of um, you know, regionalism in the, in the political parties, and the, the parties were not as uniform across the country as they are today. A lot of people talk about about Southern Democrats uh, being uh, more conservative, uh, both on uh, on social issues, um, uh, but but also uh, economic issues across across the board. Uh, Southern Democrats more conservative, but you also had a lot of urban Democrats up in the North. Uh, a lot of Democrats who voted for Ronald Reagan, uh, who really uh, took to to Reagan and Reagan's optimism, his fighting the the evil empire, you know, especially people uh, like us Poles in Chicago, who um, you know during the, those struggles of Poland against the Soviet Union, uh, people really uh, took to, to to Ronald Reagan, you know, more socially conservative, and that all fit. And I think today people probably don't understand how conservative some Democrats were. Uh, I, I mean, we're talking 1980, 41 years ago, um, but th that continued for for a number of years. It certainly was not the case that Democrats were universally liberal. Um, there were a lot of pro-life Democrats at that time, and, th and that, that continued for a couple more decades. A and so I think it's important for people to, to understand uh, people who are just uh, thinking about the way politics are now, things were very different back then. The founder of First Things, Richard John Newhouse, I think uh, his only, the only reason that he departed from the Democratic Party was because of the pro-life issue. And I think he was genuinely shocked that the post-1972 Democratic Party became increasingly wedded to the pro-abortion position. How did your dad navigate that? It was something that, you know, first of all, he he fought for um, you know, to make sure that, that Democrats who were pro-life uh, were uh, would be accepted, at least in the party. I mean, there was basically a as the Democratic Party became uh, more and more on abortion, it, it was, you know, more and more. Pro-choice. I'll, I'll 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 use that uh, that term. Uh, there was still clearly room for for pro-life Democrats. And look, if you go back to uh, when the Hyde Amendment was was first passed in the House of Representatives, uh, you had a 35 uh, percent of uh, Democrats, I believe, 35 to 40 percent voted for for the Hyde Amendment to. Uh, uh, for no taxpayer funding for for abortion, and so it, it was something that uh, certainly my father knew he was a in the minority in the party and being pro life. But it 
it wasn't an issue that um, it, it it wasn't something at least locally that it was um, that put you at, at any kind of risk as, as a Democrat. It was so much more accepted locally. Again, things were much more things were not as nationalized as as, as they are now. But uh, I have a great story about the um, the 1992 Democratic. Uh, national convention in, in New York City. I, I went up there. I uh, my mother was a, uh, a delegate, uh, but she couldn't make it, so I took her delegate credentials and was out on the floor uh, for the uh, couple of days of, of the convention. And I remember they in '92 they they stuck the Minnesota and Pennsylvania delegations uh, up in the second balcony of Madison Square Garden. Uh, because those were the strong, you know, had a good number of uh, pro-life Democrats in, in those state delegations. And so the first night I was there, I saw them up there, and I, thought, and I said, and they had stop abortion now signs. And I said, I'm going to go up there and get one of those. I, I couldn't, it was too crowded. There's no way to make it up there. So the second day I was there, I was walking in and passed by someone in a, um, in one of these small protester pens they had out there and they had those signs stop abortion now they were and i i asked if i could if i could take one to take it in and um i i convinced them i was i was sincere and i took it in there walked down illinois had a really good spot down on the floor of the uh of of the convention i had so many people try to grab that Sign out my hand as I walked down, uh, but I proudly held up that uh, held up that sign there uh, at the uh, at the convention. At that time, it was 1992. There were five Democratic members of Congress there in the Illinois delegation who were pro-life. So it, it was uh, again. I, I just go back to there used to be a lot more localism. In uh, in the parties that that doesn't exist today, so that allowed for you know, parts of the country that were democratic to to also be pro life. And things have obviously changed. You point out that as late as two thousand and nine, twenty five percent of the Democratic caucus in Congress voted for the Stupak Pets Amendment to prohibit the use of federal funds to um, subsidize health care that paid for abortions. Now we're at a position, really, and, and you were challenging primaries until finally defeated the Democratic Party solely because of your pro-life stance. And so at this point, it's really kind of impossible to function in the Democratic Party at the national level as a pro-life person. Is that fair? It is so incredibly difficult now to be pro-life uh, in in Congress as a, as a Democrat because you have to make it through a democratic primary and that is where it's it's so difficult that's that was the problem i ran into was in uh, 2018 uh you know i it was very clear to me in early 2017 that a decision was made uh in the abortion lobby that they wanted to get rid of me um and they they found their their candidate and they poured over $3 million into the race against me in 2018. And that was direct. I think a lot of the other money that my opponent 
received was also because of uh, you know, from the abortion uh, lobby and you know nearly won in in 2018 and they came back again in in 2020 as outspent more than two to one in 2020. Here, here's a a 16 year incumbent being outspent by more than two to one because there's a lot of money out there and that's that's what any any pro life Democrat faces if they want to run for for office and so that that's a problem there's but you know there are still people who are uh, still people who are running uh, I actually know uh, a few who are running right now um, and I, I, so I'm trying I'm working uh, with Democrats for life uh, I, I think it's important you know people would say to me you know you should people on both sides would, would say you need to get out of the Democratic Party, both people who are pro-life and people who are pro-choice. Um, and I would always argue that it's important to have pro-life voices in the Democratic Party. We can't allow this to become a one-party issue because it makes it that much easier for the Republican Party to take pro-life voters for granted. And, and I think the fact that Look, I I was one vote out of 435 in the House of Representatives, uh, but it was it bothered the abortion lobby so much to have my voice there in the Democratic Party that they spent easily over six million dollars to to defeat me. Uh, so they understand the the importance of, of trying to push all pro-life Democrats out. It, and still, if you look at, at polling, 25, between a quarter and a third of Democrats in this country, Democratic voters, say that they, they identify as being pro-life. Uh, but you, you, have, you have only a couple members of Congress who vote pro-life, Democrats who vote pro-life on some issues. Um, and no one who's really 100% across the board pro-life as uh, as I was uh, last year. Um, Colin Peterson from uh, Minnesota, another Democrat who is 100% pro-life, lost to a uh, Republican. Uh, but I think it's, it's really important that uh, for the pro-life movement uh, that uh, it doesn't become just a one-party issue. Uh, but uh, I think a lot needs to be done on, on, on the state and local side uh, to, to start building up again. I agree. I think it's very important that the cause of life be a bipartisan cause and not just a, a partisan cause. So uh, thank you so much for your witness in the Democratic Party. But let's shift to the Republican Party because you lived through, you and your father lived through a transformation of the Democratic Party that you regret. But now you go to the Napa Institute and you listen to an interview of J.D. Vance, and you begin to think, oh, whoa, wait a minute. The maybe the Republican Party is undergoing a kind of transformation. I mean, what, what did you, I mean, you heard all this common good talk, attacks on big tech, family wage. Um, and, and, I mean, you, were, uh, you worked for Dick, Dick Gephardt. I remember chatting with you after the Napa thing, and it sounded to me like you were saying, like, whoa, J.D. Vance sounds a lot more like Dick Gephardt than Paul Ryan. <laughs> Is that fair? 
it was um, certainly going to, you know, hear, hearing J.D. Vance speak and, uh, you know, really seeing, first of all, what uh, Donald Trump had, had talked about more, more generally um, and, and seeing that there are people like uh, J.D. Vance who, who, are, who are out there. Marco Rubio has certainly turned more in this uh, in this direction with his uh, it, it, with his rhetoric. I mean, I, I think in, in some ways his policies have been um, in, in this direction for for a few years. Uh, but I, I I feel like I've really been as I felt more and more isolated in the uh, in the Democratic Party. Uh, I know that there are. Republicans. I, I, I know there's a lot of Republicans out there, uh, and really the you know, a majority of the Republican Party voters, uh, I've believed for a while, uh, don't necessarily subscribe to all of the um, all of the economic positions of the Republican Party. Uh, they are more uh, along the, the lines of. Uh, you know, what we would think about it, they're, they're working class people. I mean, and those are the people that Donald Trump attracted and really got motivated uh, to vote for him uh, and, and for other Republicans. Uh, the Republican Party, though, uh, you know, still is, you know, stubbornly sticks to, um, you know, being about the, uh, about the makers. And you go back to the, uh, Go back to 2012 and Mitt Romney. I just remember uh, telling a uh, Republican friend of mine, that, you know, Mitt Romney just does not appeal to most. Well, I should say most. He doesn't appeal to a lot of uh, of Republicans, and certainly not the the independents, because most people are about their you know taking care of their families, and they want to hear. What kind of help? Not not the help for the people who are the job creators, and they don't have anything against job creators. But it's the employees, it's the people who who have these jobs, who 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 are looking for some for some help in in these tough uh, economic times. And that's what the you know, that's what Romney should be talking about. Not not just talking about the the makers and the entrepreneurial class. And, and Donald Trump, Donald Trump understood that, and that's what Donald Trump really appealed to. I, I don't think Donald Trump followed through uh, in on a lot of those those issues. And I'm hopeful that maybe there are Republicans now who are are going to to follow through. But it's going to be a fight in the Republican Party uh, because there are many in the Republican Party who just fear. That all this means is uh, is more big government, uh, and so I I, under, I understand that, and I have these discussions with my Republican friends, and uh, I you know I say I I understand you know you don't want you don't want the Republican Party to turn into uh, uh, into the Democratic Party on uh, on these issues in big government and government taking over. Everything and everywhere, but there is more. I think that we can you know, come to an, to agreement on, on what the government can do to help out 
workers that help out uh, out families. And, and I hope that this conversation goes on in the Republican Party, and uh, we do see a transformation of of the Republican Party in this way, a, a real serious one, not a rhetorical one that Donald Trump um, that Donald Trump did. Um, but at least I, I give Trump that credit for you know, bringing that, changing that conversation in the Republican well, Party. I, I look back on the '90s, and I think a lot of us, whether the, whether we were Reagan Republicans or Clinton Democrats, kind of bought the argument that globalization was going to lift everyone. It was going to be a win-win. Um, but my, in my experience, chatting with people on the right over the last, certainly Trump sort of forced a, a kind of reckoning that things have not worked out well for the working man over the last 30 years. You know, great time to be in a global city like New York or, or the Bay Area, but not a good time to be a high school educated person in Ohio. And, and that seems to me what Vance is, you know, groping around for the right way, both policy-wise and rhetorically, to address that problem. I mean, Gephardt opposed NAFTA, didn't he? I, I, yes, I believe that, that he did. And so, you know, he, you know, he, he, for, he saw that uh, wage competition from low-wage countries was going to affect the wages of working-class Americans negatively. And that's not a big government versus small government. That's the policy decision that needs to be reconsidered. I don't think anybody in the Republican Party wants to to um, to go to deny global the glo try to destroy the global economy. But there's a kind of sober rethinking in the air, like hmm, you know, maybe we need to revisit these decisions and adjust and make changes that tilt more in the direction of the working man. Well, I'm hopeful that uh, that's the case. It's um, there's not enough sober thought in uh, it seems when, when it comes to uh, uh, political policy issues uh, these days, and, and that's I mean that's one of the things that has um, been one of the, the most distressing things for me is uh, a, a real lack of, of Ser being serious about figuring out what what works and what doesn't work, uh, rather than uh, you know ha having a uh, sort of you go you go one way. Republican Party goes, uh, as far as I'm concerned, has gone extreme one way, and the Democratic Party extreme the other way, and there, there's not enough uh, real sober thinking and, and real consideration of uh, what are we doing here? What is, what are the best policies for uh, the people of, uh, of this country, especially working people now who are struggling with globalization? We're not, not turning back globalization. That, 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 that's not possible. We're, we're not, you know, we're not going to make America a, a fortress and, and you know, everyone understands, I, I think, or I hope they, they understand that you can't and you don't want to do that. Um, but that doesn't mean that uh, we have a complete laissez-faire uh, economic uh, policy. Uh, something in between there, and we just need to figure out what the best way to, uh, to do that is. 
it, there will, I, my sense is that underneath a lot of the very bitter partisan rancor, there is a growing consensus that failure to flourish among high school educated Americans is a serious, serious problem for the future of our country. And because the Biden administration put middle class flourishing as one of the criteria for our foreign policy. And that's a kind of recognition that hmm, things haven't worked out the way we thought it would over the last 30 years. And you see Romney, he, he presents a different face now supporting um, supporting, you know, subsidies for uh, parents with children and, and so forth. And you can you can quarrel about the wisdom of some of the policies, but there, there does seem to be a, a growing consensus that we have to do something. And there'll be a left version of that, which I think will be going the direction of programs. And there should be a right version, which I think is kind of thoughtful ways to think about how you can raise wages in a free economy. Um, so I guess you could count me guardedly optimistic <laughs> that we're going to move in the direction that you hope for and you call for in your piece and that Rubio refers to as common good capitalism. What do you see as the threats or or uh, to that kind of movement in our in our public life? Well, I, I think that the uh, the the pressures in in Washington are to in, in, the interest groups are out there who are not really <laughs> their their interests are, are not helping out. Uh, the people you were talking about, the, the Americans with the, the high school education who are, who are struggling, the, the families. Uh, I, I think you're right that there is a recognition, more of a recognition now, that uh, something needs to, to be done. Yeah, I think back to 2012, I think that was a kind of low watermark, you know, Romney's ill-considered makers versus takers remark. And, uh, um, you know, it, 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 people were kind of blind in a way. People knew there was a problem, but nobody would talk about it. And that was true in both parties, by the way, I think. Um, I don't think it was just a Republican Party blindness. We were kind of blinded by a kind of libertarian free market ideology. But the Democratic Party had become increasingly now the party of the university class, what I call the university the laptop class. Um, and also, I mean, to calling half the country deplorables, that's a that's a that was like an equal. That was essentially she said the same thing that Romney did. So you had a kind of bipartisan <laughs> blindness. Um, no, I think that I think that's a a great point there, and that uh, sort of what I, what I was trying to say. There, there's just a, again, there's still not the you know having spent 16 years in Washington, uh, those aren't the the voices that we hear most from. So out in Washington, uh, those aren't the that that's not who who's driving the uh, the policy making or in in either or the the discussions about what uh, the best policy should what what parties the what policies the parties are going to put forward. They're not the ones driving it in, in Washington, and so that I I, I have a concern uh, about that. The other the other part of this is. is and this is something certainly from uh, more understood on the, on the Republican side is so much. There are economic issues here, but there's it, the cultural issues are. Uh, you know, I, I 
certainly believe are even more important. Um, and they go they go hand in hand. And that's something that I think on, on the right, um, it took a while for an understanding that it wasn't just cultural. Uh, on the left, I don't think that there has been an acceptance yet that the issues are also not just economic, they're also cultural. And you mean by that, uh, the kind uh, collapse of marriage in working class America and the need for a for a pro-marriage, pro-family outlook on the part of the Democratic Party, just as the Republican Party needs to wake up and be pro-worker. That's not something that uh, you know people are talking about, despite the fact that I was actually just telling someone this the other day. I, I said, look, there's all the talk about follow the science. Um, I, I used to be a political scientist, so I'm a I'm a social scientist. You you look at the social science, you, you look at the data, and you see you can you can see what it takes to be successful in this country. And so many of the things. I mean, if you you know to, to have an, a mother and father in the home uh, is you know, extremely significant. I mean, the, the education and. Uh, yeah, somebody accused me of being from a privileged background, and I said, "You're absolutely right. I had the good fortune of growing up in a home with a mother and a father. That's one of the great privileges, and that's what's increasingly inaccessible to young people. And I think that's uh, that really. I agree with you. I think that that's um, needs to be thought about very, very seriously. So, what's the next step for for you? Well. Uh... I am doing a lot of writing right now. I'm working on a uh, a book uh, where I'm talking about the uh, the divide in our country, which is um, more than tribal or partisan divide. It's it's really a sectarian divide, and uh, I'm talking about what I did in in Congress to try to bring people together, and that it's really Catholics who are uniquely gifted, I believe, uh, Catholics who don't really fit neatly into either of these these sects. Uh, it's up to us to, to, to step forward right now and show a, a, a better way. And I think this could help bring healing uh, to our country. It's, it's, not, it's not an easy process. Uh, I, I think it's really important for, for Catholics to be Catholic first and put being Catholic ahead of their, their partisanship. Thank you. Well, great. Well, thanks for your contribution, your service to our country, and, and thanks for your witness uh, to the cause of life. Um, so thanks, Dan, for being on the show. 